0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 27, 2016. This is episode 1879 of the Survival Podcast. Today's going to be a different show. I'm going to have no commercials today. I'm not going to have a history segment. Today's show is going to be dedicated to a single subject. It may end up being a little shorter than normal as well. But um, I'm calling an audible today, basically. I'm breaking with uh, the schedule to do a show dedicated to Bill Mollison. Uh, for those that don't know who Bill Mollison was, Bill Mollison is the creator of Permaculture, uh, co-founder of the movement along with his research assistant, David Holgram. Uh, all the way back in the 1970s, and uh, wrote the uh, Permaculture Designer's Manual, uh, which is considered the Bible of permaculture. But today's show is not going to be so much about permaculture. It's going to be more about Bill's philosophy of life and how that's impacted me. And I want to do something. I want to actually play for you um, a, a tribute, but it really reads more like an incredible obituary. It was written by uh, Graham Bell at GrahamBell.org. And I have a link in the show notes today where you can actually get the transcript. But the person reading is actually Diego Footer from the Permaculture Voices podcast. And uh, I'd like to just go ahead and play that for you now. I saw no reason to read it myself when Diego did such a great job. And a link to his podcast is available as well. And after that, I'm going to tell you some of my thoughts about Bill and his philosophy of living. And I'll give you some quotes by Bill Mollison that you may not have heard before uh, that will fit right in with what we teach here at the Survival Podcast every day, even when we're not talking about growing trees or growing plants. I'll also tell you about a cool way you can honor Bill Mollison. And I have a song uh, set up at the end of today's show that many of you might be like, really? That's the choice? But if you listen to the words and you listen to my explanation of when I play it, I think it'll make perfect sense. Until somebody uh, writes a song called the Bill Mollison Song, I think that's the best that we can do when it comes to remembering someone that's guided so many of us in so many ways. With that, let me play for you now Diego Footer reading Graham Bell's tribute to Bill Mollison.
2: And there's a really good post written on GrahamBell.org, written by Graham Bell himself, It's more an obituary, and I'm going to read this verbatim. I didn't write this. All credit to Graham Bell for doing this. I'm just using this article in the spirit of journalism because it's well-written and it's already there. It's an easy piece for me to turn to to give you an idea of who Bill was. So these are Graham's words, not mine. The obituary that he wrote. For Bruce Charles Bill Mollison, 1928-2016 to Quote, Bruce Charles Bill Mollison, born in 1928 in Stanley, Tasmania, Australia, died today, the 24th of September, 2016, in Sisters Beach, Tasmania. A few people are born who are world-class heroes to those who know them and unknown to the great majority, until one day their inescapable influence floats to the surface and is generally recognized for the cream it is. In hindsight, such leaders go on to become household names. Such a man was Bill Mollison, backwoodsman, academic, storyteller, ladies' man, and to many just Uncle Bill. But doing all these things par excellence. In consequence, he has left a worldwide movement of remarkable resilience. He's left much useful information and not a few words of guidance and encouragement for those who will miss him most. Growing up in Stanley, Tasmania, he left school at 15 to help run the family bakery and before 26 went through the occupations of shark fishermen and seamen bringing vessels from post-war disposals to southern ports. He was a forester, a mill worker, a trapper, a snarer, a tractor driver, and a naturalist. His lack of formal education gave him many learning opportunities in how the real world works. Bill joined Cicero, the Wildlife Survey Section, in 1954 and gained extensive research knowledge. His time in the Tasmanian rainforest gave him the founding structure for what became his life's passion. Permaculture. The idea that we could consciously design sustainable systems which enabled human beings to live within their means and for all wildlife to flourish with us. A spell at the Tasmanian Museum and curatorial duties, a return to field work with the Inland Fisheries Commission took him back to college in 1966, living on his wits running cattle, security bouncing at dances, Shark fishing and teaching part-time at an exclusive girls school. Upon receiving his degree in biogeography, he was appointed to the University of Tasmania where he later developed the unit of environmental psychology. During his university period, which lasted for 10 years, Bill independently researched and published a three-volume treatise on the history and genealogies of the descendants of the Tasmanian Aborigines. In 1974, With David Holmgren, Bill developed the beginning of the permaculture concept. He became fixated on proving and promulgating what he saw as a world-renewing concept. Leaving the university in 1978, abandoning a secure academic tenure at the age of 50, an unheard-of move at the time, Bill devoted all his energies to furthering the system of permaculture and spreading the ideas and principles worldwide. He's taught thousands of students and has contributed many articles, curricula, reports, and recommendations for farm projects, urban clusters, and local government bodies. In 1981, Bill Mollison received the Right Livelihood Award, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel Prize for his work in environmental design. In recent years, he established a Trust for Aid fund to enable permaculture teachers to reach groups in need, particularly in the poorest parts of the world with the aim of leaving a corps of teachers locally to continue appropriate educational work. We are helped in remembering Bill by his 1996 autobiography, Travels and Dreams. Typically, he laughs at himself, stating, quote, This book is a work of fiction. Most, if not all of it, is lies. Even the lies are imprecise reports of old lives overheard. End quote. He wasn't universally liked, one reason being he was committed to disrupt the status quo of misguided, unfeeling management. First feel fear, then get angry, then go with your life into the fight. He was eloquent about the need for peaceful warriors as he called them to challenge the stupidity of ill-governance on a global scale. His own fears about being ineffectual were misguided. Nobody takes any notice of me, and even my friends continually criticize me. In reality, he engendered a massive global respect, which will endure and grow as others develop his foundation thinking. The pinnacle of his career to his students was the publication in 1998 of the Permaculture Designer's Manual, honored to this day by devotees as the Bible of permaculture. If devotees suggest falsely some religious connotation, it's really that Bill pioneered a deep respect for the planet and for more sensible approaches for how we live in it, stating, We are true Time Scouts, finding places now for what will be needed then. Bill asked, Are we the public or the private person? The truth of that matter is that for all seasons we are both perceived as challenging, a huge harvester of great ideas from around the world, and not always crediting their sources. Bill was also a sensitive man, an eloquent raconteur, a poet, and appreciative of the poetry of others. He knew how to provoke others into action, but also when to withdraw and let others carry on the work. He paraphrased Lao Tzu, True change is to so change things that it seems natural to everybody, but no one knows who thought of it. And our best will not be our children's best. Though outwardly gruff and challenging, There was a real heart to everything he did. Bill Mollison founded the first and original Permaculture Institute, which was established in 1979 to teach the practical design of sustainable soil, water, plant, and legal and economic systems to students worldwide. Bill's legacy is that of hundreds of thousands of past students have created a worldwide network to take his concept forward. This is a world in which we are acutely aware of our environment, its capacity, and its limitations, and we design systems to meet human needs which respect that. Bill spent his final years in Sisters Beach, Tasmania. The final words must go to him in true classical tone. If you hear that I am dead, tell them they lie. End quote. That whole passage was written and composed by Graham Bell. Graham Bell is the author of The Permaculture Way... And the permaculture garden, and he's been teaching permaculture internationally for over two and a half decades. He has one of the oldest food forest gardens in the borders of Scotland, and it was originally posted on GrahamBell.org.
1: Well, it's a, a very moving tribute by someone that, unlike Diego and myself, actually got to know Bill a lot more personally, and actually, you know, did get to speak to him and meet him in, in the flesh, so to speak. Uh, I never had that honor, Diego never had that I- honor either. Um, I want to tell you a, kind of a a big thing here for me with this is uh when when we lose somebody that's that's done as much as Bill Mollison has done and now those of you that maybe aren't completely familiar with him get a sense at least a a, a kind of an idea of of what a incredible individual Bill Mollison was and the the accomplishments that uh he had in his his life of I guess 88 years that when that person ceases to live on this planet as we think of life and, and it's gone, we tend to uh we tend to think it's a sorrowful thing. And I'm sure for his family, even though uh based on what I'm about to tell you, I think they had come to as much peace with it as one can when losing a loved one, that for me I don't mourn the loss of Bill Mollison. Um, I I loved his final words if you hear that I am dead tell them they lie I don't think he said that just to be terse or to be funny or to be Bill because that's how Bill was I think that's because he believes there's something else, whatever it is he would embrace it Um, I don't believe from my knowledge and talking to uh, Bill's grandson that that Bill was any kind of uh, truly religious person but I do believe he believed in something more Uh, Maybe, I don't know, maybe he was a deist such as myself, believing that there is a higher power and and, and something beyond this that we cannot know until we make that final step. But if you hear that I am dead, tell them they lie. So in 2014, I guess, 2013, uh, I had a good fortune to get as close to meeting Bill as I would ever get, and that was to meet his grandson. And I spent quite a bit of time talking with him at Permaculture Voices. And he told me the family had come to the understanding already that um, that that Bill would not be with us for much longer, even three years ago. So that's part of why I'm like mourning this man's loss at this point. There's, there's a point, I believe, if we've lived our life to our fullest and we, we have no real regrets... And as we age and, and our time starts coming to an end, there's a time where we welcome the, 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 the opportunity to to transition from life. Where life no longer is is worth living physically. Um, it may be a gift, honestly, that you know when you live long enough, you get to that point so that you no longer fear death. I know many people say they don't fear death, but if they were given a, you know, a death sentence from cancer or something tomorrow, they might change their mind. But I, I have been in the presence of many people who you know, are 80 years plus, 90 years plus, who know that they are soon going to, to cross that bridge that we all must cross as mortal beings. And I've seen a complete lack of fear and, and somewhat of an embracement. And if you listen to the whole podcast with Diego, you'll hear that Permaculture Voices 1 um, Bill was talked to about coming to America to speak, and it was just determined that he was not physically able to. So, three years ago, that was the case. And I, I think I made a mistake there when I said it was 2013 I talked to Bill's grandson. It would have been 2014 because it was Permaculture Voices 2 that I got to, to speak to Bill's grandson. And, uh, it, it was, it was a great experience. And what I know from that Discussion is something I don't think has really been talked about much, but I do hope the family does something with all this. Bill has countless amounts of notebooks and writings, and we're trying to figure out, well, what do we do when he's finally gone to make sure that this isn't lost? And my response was, publish it all in any way possible. You know, I mean, just get it out there because the man was brilliant. He was brilliant. And I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about some of the things that Bill had to say that fit with what I teach you every day here on the Survival Podcast, and you may not have heard them before. Uh, And they're quite anarchist in, in, in my view as well, especially this first one. He says, The tragic reality is that very few sustainable systems are designed or applied by those who hold power. And the reason for this is obvious and simple. To let people arrange their own food, energy, and shelter is to lose economic and political control over them. We should cease to look to power structures, hierarchical systems, or governments to help us, and devise ways to help ourselves. I I, I think that kind of sums up the entire thing that I've been doing for over eight years here at the Survival Podcast. The philosophy that I've, I've come at this with from the very beginning that you cannot rely on the people in power to fix and save your lives. Last night, almost a 100 million people tuned in to see Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton debate, and I'll admit I did too, for for the purpose of having material for the show. And as I thought about that this morning, I thought, boy, this is a hell of a lot more important than that is. What we have now there are, are two camps of people that don't really support either candidate, they despise the other candidate. They're so afraid of the other candidate that they have to stop that candidate, as though uh, as though their side would be the lesser evil. And this belief that somehow, you know, one man can make America great again, or or I can be with her, it it, 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 it it's it's laughable. It's laughable. Do did, did, did we think that the system that created the problem is the solution to the problem? The system created on purpose. That's what Bill was telling us here. There's no benefit to the people in power creating a system in which you can see to your own needs. Because then you don't need them. So why don't we get on with doing it? Why don't we decide that it's us and it's only us? And all we have are each other. I mean, I know it's easy to get down on people, and I do. But in the end, the people that you see around you, that's it. That's what you get. That's what you have to work with. And most of the people that you you just look at and sigh and think, oh my God, they're victims of this same system from a different angle than you are. And, and and they're probably less further along in their walk of discovery, and they haven't figured it out yet. They don't know yet. They don't know yet that the people in power really don't want them to have control over their own lives. They believe one side does and one side does. not it's as ridiculous as that sounds. But people in power, their ultimate goal is what? To retain power. They have nothing else. There's nothing else. Get more power, or if you've gotten as much power as you can, hold on to it. How does anyone gain more power or retain power if they enable you to feed your family without the systems? How do they get more power, retain more power, if you take control of your ability to heal yourself? to provide heat and cooling for your family, to house yourself. They don't. So they've created a system in which, think about this, man, mankind, the highest level organism we know of in the universe. Now, I don't think we are, but that we know of. Certainly, we are the highest level organism on planet Earth. We can think And plan and do what no other creature can. The most intelligent creatures we can look to are maybe the the great apes, the dolphins, the whales. They're interesting, they're amazing creatures, but they can't do anything that a human being can do. We can build a rocket and go to the moon, or we can build a rocket and blow someone up halfway around the world. Nothing else can even come close to that. And yet... We, as a species, are the only species on planet Earth that must pay in order to use the planet. We must pay for the resources of the planet. Every other creature is able to exist without money. Every other creature is able to exist without government. Every other creature is able to just be part of the natural world and survive just fine. In fact, better off many times without us. But yet I I believe, as Bill did, that we have an obligation now to fix the things. We can't just leave stuff alone. We screwed it up so bad we have to step in and fix it. But when I found Bill Mollison, let me talk about how I did that. I was probably uh, 30 episodes into survival podcasts and I had heard about this thing called permaculture because I was always into gardening and growing stuff. And I always thought, well permaculture, that's cool. You grow trees instead of lettuce, right? And somebody sent me this video it says, have you seen this? This is amazing. And it was a really poor production quality video at the time, but it was greening the desert with Jeff Lawton. That was my first exposure to permaculture. And I, I went, wow. If Jeff Lawton can go into this couple-acre site in the middle of the desert in Jordan where the land is salted, where there's nothing green, and do this, then me complaining about how hard it is to grow vegetables in north-central Texas is insane. I have no excuse, and I need to learn more about this. And as I started examining permaculture as a whole, I found some of the hippie stuff, the people rolling in the mud and stuff like that, and I, I don't know about this. This didn't seem like what it was. And then I found Bill Mollison. And I, I think it was the, the video called In Grave Danger of Failing Food. And he was talking about his, his life that led him to found permaculture. And let me give you a quote about that, but then I'm going to tell you the additional thing that he says in this video. I have a, a, a graphic of Bill for today's uh, featured image. And it says, I withdrew from society about 1970 because I had been long in opposition to the systems that I saw were killing us. I decided it was no good persisting with opposition that got you nowhere. I thought for two years. I wanted to return to society, but I wanted to come back only with something very positive. So Bill came to a conclusion that resisting the system with the system's own tools would get you nowhere, so he left. He said, the hell with this. And he went he basically lived in the forest for two years. Now what he says in this video, and again, I think it's in grave danger of failing food, but the words are are etched into my brain. He said, I decided that I could just stay there and let the bastards run over everything, or I could come back and fight the bastards. And I went, that's it. That's my guy. This is something real. I can do this. And 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 I've, I I've been overjoyed how many times I've heard this audience because of something I said or some idea I floated say, that's something I can do because I know that moment. I had that moment with Bill. And when I started looking at this, I quickly realized with the systems-level thinking that I came from, with the mechanical thinking that I came from, with a troubleshooting mentality I came from this is not about just growing food this is about understanding systems and designing systems in a better way and, and and when I realized that was when I began to take this podcast more seriously like I said I found this all about you know a month and a half in and all I was worried about telling you guys in the very beginning, if you go back and listen, some basic preparedness stuff and get the hell out of the stock market because it's going to crash, which you did. When I found this, I went, this, see, this is why you guys that like this show, you owe Bill, whether you like permaculture or not. It gave me the framework to come at this show from. To stop worrying about who got elected or who didn't get elected. To start pointing to the hypocrisy. And saying, look, you think you have an influence on this system. You have no influence on this system at all. It's an illusion. But here's all this other stuff you can do. Here's all these other ways that you can have an influence, that you can make something happen. These are ways where you can look at something and find the one or two things that you know and go, I can do that. You owe that to Bill. If you've had one of those moments on this show, just one, you owe it to Bill as much as you owe it to me. Because it was this thinking that permeated what I was doing in such a way that transformed my mentality. The other thing that I, I really credit Bill with a lot is leading me in the direction of anarchism. Now, I, fa- I frankly feel like Bill lived his entire life like I used to be. He's an anarchist that didn't know he was an anarchist. And I, I based that on an interview he did with a guy named Scott London, and this is on scottlondon.com, interviews slash Mollison, okay? And it's the final question that London asks him. He says, actually, I'm going to read the last two questions and answers. He says, even though permaculture is based on scientific principles, it seems to have a very strong philosophical and ethical dimension. Mollison says, there is an ethical dimension because I think science without ethics is sociopathy. To say I'll apply what I know regardless of the outcome is to take absolutely no responsibility for your actions. I don't want to be associated with that sort of science. London says, what do you think you've started? Mollison says, well, it's a revolution. It's a revolution. But it's the sort of revolution that no one will notice. It might get a little shadier. Buildings might function better. You might have less money to earn because your food is... You might have to have less money to earn because food is all around you and you don't have any energy costs. Giant amounts of money might be freed up in society so that we can provide for ourselves better. So it's a revolution. But permaculture is anti-political. There is no room for politicians or administrators or priests. And there is no law either. The only ethics we obey are care of the earth, care of people, and reinvestment to those ends reinvestment to those ends. I, I I think what's interesting to me is people say, how could we ever have a society that wasn't run by oligarchs and an overreaching state? Now what they say is, we have to have law and order. That's what they say. But that's what they're saying. like We have to have a state. We have to have an apparatus of control. If we obeyed three ethics, and only three ethics, that are universal that most people wouldn't have a problem with, we don't screw up the planet that we're on. And we don't hurt the people on the planet and we reinvest our efforts to improve that for everybody else. What the heck do we need a state for? What law could you possibly break that's worth having that doesn't involve harming the planet or harming the people on the planet? Which one? And if you say anyone and it, and it actually doesn't harm people or planets, there is no victim. It's not a crime. It's not a, it should not be against the law. We 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 should if we were just an ethical species, which I believe at our core we are. I believe it is actually the systems of control that have led us astray from our own ethics. The average person knows not to screw the planet up. If you had the average person with with, with an IQ high enough to understand what they would be doing, a five gallon drum of oil, and say go dump it on the on the forest floor over there, they're not going to do it. Like no, that's wrong. You don't need a law that says it's illegal for the average person to know that it's wrong. But if you set up a system where there's no way to get rid of it, that ethical person might turn around and do it because they don't know what else to do. Especially if they're worried about how they're going to feed their family tonight. and How they're going to keep them warm. If you tell the average person to go harm another person, they don't do it. In fact, most people, when they do harm other people, They don't know they're hurting someone else. They don't see it that way. They've been conditioned to believe that what they're doing is necessary or has to be done. We could say that in so many walks of life. And what Mollison was calling for here, whether he knew it or not, was for society to look after itself. Maybe a little less directly than the other uh, quote that I read you. Here's another quote that I love by Bill Mollison. I teach self-reliance, the world's most subversive practice, I teach people how to grow their own food, which is shockingly subversive. So yes, it's seditious, but it's peaceful sedition. Sedition, folks, is a is a word used for crimes that can get you the death penalty in this country still. He wasn't afraid to call it what it is. When you actually take control of your own life, when you start to actually sever your ties to the systems of support that you're told are the only way you can survive... It is a seditious act. It's just a peaceful sedition, which it makes it very difficult for them to come after. You see, I believe Bill was a genius. And I believe he had a rebellious warrior spirit. He was pretty good at pissing people off. Does that remind you of anybody you know? Uh, I'm just saying. Um, but... He understood that if he took the anger that he felt, the thing that made him refer to the people doing all this damage as bastards, and boy, the, the 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 people with an Aussie and uh, New Zealand an English accent people like that, oh, man, they can just say that so much better than anybody with a plain old Texas accent can. I for some reason, but but if he took that and he went into some sort of activism that was more of what we think of with like you know uh, political demonstrations and anything even approaching something akin to violence he would actually be very easy to stop but how the hell do you fight back against a seditious insurrection of people planting trees i think what he did is it is, is cuz his his philosophy was so much greater than just the agricultural components that, that he, he taught. That was the weapon of choice. When you start talking about teaching society to be self-reliant as a, a form of sedition, you're not just talking about growing grapes and apples and chickens and eggs. You're talking about freeing people. You're talking about liberating people. And you know that most liberation ideology is made out to be quacks and nuts. You end up on terror watch lists, and uh, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center does uh, uh, seminars about how you're so evil and, and what have you, and, and are made out. But how do you do that? When well, what are they doing? Oh, they're 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 planting trees. Well, they're 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 taking chickens, and instead of putting them in a house, they're letting them run free, and they're controlling where they run, and they're making the land greener. And we know it works because it was brown and now it's green. See? See how evil there? You see how this is one of the most passive martial arts at an intellectual level that's ever been committed by society. That's what Bill Mollison was doing. That's what the whole permaculture movement is. You know, when, when we break the law in permaculture, when we have positive apathy and positive anarchy in permaculture, it's very difficult for the system to do anything about it. I'll give you some examples. Brad Lancaster from Phoenix or Tucson, Arizona, is a genius when it comes to water harvesting methods. And in one of the neighborhoods near him, they decided that they would get out a concrete saw and cut curbs. Well, this is think about this, right? Think about where you live. If you live in like a subdivision or something like that, if you got out a concrete saw and cut a, started cutting the curbs off the side of the road, you know, might the Department of Making You Sad show up? But Brad and his friends did it, talked to neighbors, whatever, it's kind of got it done. Now, why would you do this? Well, turns out when you cut a hole in a curb of a road and put a little bit in there to redirect it, when it rains, all that water that goes down the road in a place like Tucson that doesn't get that much rain goes, instead of down the road, down the drain, and away, goes into a dirt reservoir that you've built you know, between the sidewalk and the street, if you think about that, the nature strip, as they call it. And if you plant trees there, turns out trees grow. So. This whole neighborhood in Tucson goes from being typical Tucson, you know, where they have very little irrigation and whatever. And, you know, they can't water much because of water rationing. Everything's zero skipped. All, it's like shaded trees. It feels 20 degrees cooler walking down that street. They have all these products coming out, uh, of the, the trees, food, medicines, and, and, and fibers, etc. They create this whole little local economy. They slowly grow it. Well, eventually, if you do something like this, You know, the people in power catch on, and they say, what's going on here? Well, how do you go into a neighborhood like that and say, oh, we got to take all this out? Do you want to be the town council doing that? Now, if you'd gone to the town council and said, "Uh, Mr. Councilman, please, may we cut holes in your street, please? You know what, they would have said no, and then you would have never been able to do it. Better to ask forgiveness than permission, I guess, Right? Even though I don't like that term, I, I, I get the point, but I don't think you should have to ask forgiveness for doing the right thing. So I'd say better to be able, better, better to have to explain yourself than to ask for permission. But once it was done, what ended up happening was wow, this is pretty cool. And now new subdivisions being put in in Tucson have to have water catchment installed like this. Now, so from the outside, by focusing on self-reliance and being subversive and teaching people to grow their own food, which is sedition, the system was changed by one man, Brad Lancaster, and the people that worked with him. Another man named Ron Finley in South L.A. in the places that no one cared about anymore, just started planting Gorilla Gardens all over the place to feed the people in a food desert, to feed the people that are on food stamps, but yet they never eat real food. And sometimes the city would come and tear a garden out. And somehow, a couple of weeks later, it would just show back up. And as he started to do this and there was more and more soil being built, all of a sudden plants and flowers and stuff just started popping up all over the place in addition to where he was actually doing it intentionally through volunteers. right? Not mean volunteer people, I mean seed falling out and then up in a crack and all of this enrichment, all of a sudden there's a plant growing there, there's marigolds growing there, there's tomatoes growing there. And over time, the people that lived there started going, it's pretty amazing that there's food right outside of our doors now. And when the city started to want to take it away, they're like, I don't think so. What are you doing? Do you want to start a riot over tearing tomatoes out? Do you really? In a place where people are hungry and have problems? See, this is permaculture. It is insurrection. and Bill called it revolution, and I took it upon myself with 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 uh with with some great humility but really to say it's no longer it's no longer a revolution a revolution is not sufficient anymore it's evolved past that they had a chance to surrender to this you know back in the 70s when bill started his work and we've had to fight them we've had to fight the bastards now with bill's help for 40 years and they still fight and we still use the seditious act But we've gone from being revolutionaries to insurrectionists. What's the difference? A revolution is what people think they're doing when they throw the bums out of office and put a new group of bums in. Or they take up arms and get rid of the old government, install a new government, elect new leaders. It's a transfer of power. It's a transfer of power from one group of leaders to another group of leaders. An insurrection is where the insurrectionist says I've had enough. Had enough of all of you. I own myself... I own my life, I'm taking the power away from you, and I'm seizing it for myself. And I'm helping anybody else that wants to do that, that shares my common ideals, to do that too. In this case, though, we have a peaceful insurrection. We have an insurrection based on helping people. We have an insurrection that's not based on false insurrection, which is we're going to pretend to be insurrections just long enough to seize power ourselves, and then it becomes a revolution, and you guys all have to fall in line now. The great evil plan of permaculture is to provide people their basic needs in a way where communities can support themselves and then leave everybody the hell alone to live the way they want to live. I'm just saying. And and this is the man who has now departed from our earthly form. He's gone. But he's immortal. His words will live on in his writings, his quotes like I'm giving you today, videos with him in them, the audios you can listen to, the PDC taught with Jeff Lawton, where he taught us, for instance, that, gee, we can actually power almost everything we need to power with compressed air. And that technology existed for over a 100 years. And there's a way to create compressed air with no pollution whatsoever to actually make the water that creates the compressed air better when it comes out than when it went in and not actually use any of the water, just use the water's motion. To make a car believe it or not, they could be propelled by compressed air. And as that compressed air is being released, as isothermic compressed air actually keeps food cold in the trunk of your car on your way home. And we used to have these types of systems. And you learn about that from people like Bill Mollison. And what I loved about Bill was, Jeff said the same thing, Jeff Long said the same thing. He would hit you over the head, over and over and over, with these facts that couldn't possibly be facts. Oh, that can't be true. That can't be true. That can't be true. That can't be true. And then if you, when you, when you said, okay, fine, I'm going to write all this crap down and prove this old goat's lying, and you would go research it, and you, he's, it's true. That's true. That's true. And finally, you give up. Finally, you give up and say, okay, tell me more, Bill. Tell me more. One of the great stories I remember from that PDC on CD is. Um, He draws this thing, and I can't remember exactly how it looked, but it was like three shapes and a big circle and some some other shapes. And They would draw this on the ground, and they would sing the song. And it was the Aborigines in Australia that would do this. They would sing the song, sing the song. And he didn't know what it was. And finally, they trusted him enough to tell him what it was. It was a sacred place, and it was a map. But the map wouldn't work without the song. Since the song was a metric sent to music, And that metric would be used with a group of people walking that would average out how far they would walk per step by adjusting for each other. By singing the song and following the map, the the meter and the metric of the music would lead you to the sacred place. And that's how they kept it a secret from others. Who knows that? I mean, lots of us do now. I just told 150,000 people that. But without Bill, would you know that? Would I know that? I don't know that anybody would know that. What type of trust does it take to be trusted with something like that? And people would say, well, he gave it away. Well, no. You don't know where it is. It's like having a map but not knowing where to start. It's just a technique. That's all he was willing to give away. He didn't say, well, it's at this grid coordinate. You go there and that's where your starting point is. You have to know where your starting point is. You have to know the song. He did teach us the song. He taught us that there was a song. That's... Amazing. And you have to understand when somebody experiences life with people like that, how how seditious they're going to become. Because they realize that these people are free. These people are truly free. These people truly live in peace with each other. They want nothing from anybody. All they want is to be left alone. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, you know what, I really don't want anything from anybody other than the ability to live my life and be left alone? you know why you feel that way? It's part of the human condition. We've been taught to believe that that's wrong, that's isolationist, whatever. I think when people say they want to be left alone, they don't mean that I don't want anybody around me. They mean I want to be with people that are like me and I want people to leave me alone. I don't want to be told that my grass is an inch too high. I don't want to be told I can't park my car in the freaking driveway. I don't, you know I mean? I don't want to be told I can't have a rabbit in a cage in a backyard. That's what they mean when they say they want to be left alone. Not that they actually want to be alone. Here's another great quote, probably one of Bill's most famous quotes. The greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even on a small scale in our own gardens. If only 10% of us do this, there is enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack, and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter.
0: Man. Man.
1: What good is it to be a revolutionary if you're only going to starve in the end? Or... You're only going to end up dependent upon another system, just like the one you fought, to overthrow. What point is there to it? Isn't it better to be an insurrectionist that takes the path of self-reliance? And I think that we need to examine the word self-reliance, self-sufficiency, when it comes from somebody like Bill Mollison. Our kind of he-man culture has made self-reliant out to be the guy that you know throws a pack on, picks up a rifle... Hikes off into the, the wilderness of Idaho, never to be seen again, uh, with enough ammo and equipment and supplies to live off the land for the rest of his life. And I would say that the guy that actually pulls that off is self-reliant. But that's one version of self-reliant. That's not what Bill's talking about. Self-reliant is not an individual self-reliance, but a community-based self-reliance. Where people choose to work with others that think the way they do to provide these needs together with each other for neighborhoods to become almost like micro city states, but without the state apparatus that when you go to this neighborhood, this neighborhood takes care of itself. And then there's a certain amount of trade they need to do outside of that neighborhood. That's a small piece within the permaculture designers manual. Bill actually gives us the blueprint for developing our own individual economic systems that are started by two or three people. Really recommend you check out the permaculture designer's manual if you haven't. It is almost impossible to read on some levels, but it's worth the challenge. Bill, to me, writes a sentence like a normal person writes a paragraph. He gets into a single sentence as much as you can get in with a paragraph. And he writes a paragraph like a page. And he writes a page like a chapter. He writes a chapter like a book. And he writes a book like a collection of encyclopedias. He cramped, I mean, I think you can learn more from the PDM, the Permaculture Designer's Manual, which is one book that's about the size of an old fashioned, you know, encyclopedia that's of a, a common letter like C or something, not Z, right? And there's more information in there, really that's relevant to your life and relevant to humanity than in a whole set of the old-school encyclopedias that it could ever have. And those encyclopedias are largely outdated. Think about Encyclopedia Britannica, World Book, whatever. Whatever you had when you were a kid, if you are old enough to even remember hard-copy encyclopedias. A a very expensive set of encyclopedias from 1985 today is in many ways not very useful. So much of it's outdated and, and, and lost, The words in the PDM are as relevant as they they were written. Bill was an amazing genius. I'm going to give you one more quote, and then I'm going to close up today. I'm going to talk about the song that I chose and tell you why I chose it. Listen to this quote. Those of you that are still on the fence about this permaculture stuff, and Bill, and maybe just listen today because you listen every day, and and it kind of decided to get through it with me. I think this is the one that's going to hit you between the eyes as short as it is and, and win you over. A really failing society has a lot of rules or laws. A really failing society has a lot of rules or laws. In other words, the closer a nation gets to collapse, the more laws and rules that it has. And if you go back and look at every, every single nation that ever collapsed, it's a pattern. Bill teaches us about pattern recognition. As they get closer and closer to their own demise, they try to prop themselves up by more and more restrictions on the lives of people. You can see that with Rome. You could see that in Argentina, right before it collapsed. You certainly could see it in the Soviet Union, right before it collapsed. It, 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 the, the more that it goes wrong, the more that those in power attempt to control the people that they have under their control. Because there's a fundamental reality. Most people follow the law, not because it's the law, because overall they feel it's the right thing to do. That's why most people follow laws. If, if they made a, if, if they repealed the law tomorrow that makes it a crime to go to the grocery store and steal from the grocery store, they didn't like say it's okay to steal from the grocery store. They just said we will no longer be arresting people who steal food from the grocery store. Would you steal food from the grocery store? I know some people would, but most people wouldn't. Most people wouldn't. Why? Because you know it's fundamentally wrong to take something that's not your own. So when a society is about to collapse, what happens is they start putting ridiculous amounts of rules and regulations in to try to control everything and to try to prop the system up. And eventually they get enough rules and regulations in that people either can't follow them anymore or simply say, I'm not doing that. And when one person says they're not doing it, they grab them, they lock them up, they throw them in a cage, they find them, they ruin their life, they destroy them. But there's a what's called a critical mass in any movement, and there's a point at which people go, yeah, I'm not doing that either. Yeah, me either. No, I'm not doing that. And even the electri- elected officials at the lower level, the 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 the, 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 the legislative clowns at the local level, the state level, say, yeah, we're not doing that either. We're not doing that anymore. We're not doing that anymore. No. And unfortunately, what ends up happening usually is chaos, what some people call anarchy. It ain't anarchy. And it goes into a tailspin. I feel like this is the only time in history where people really have seen it coming and have started to build the systems to replace it before it falls apart. And that's why I'm hopeful. I think this, coupled with what's being done with technology gives us a really hopeful future. But only if we continue to ring the bell. I'll give you one more quote from Bill. We're only truly secure when we can look out our kitchen window and see our food growing and our friends working nearby. That's the vision that Bill had for all of us. And when I look at Bill, I see this titan, this this magnanimous man, that was that was doing so much on so many levels. He was teaching he was teaching a anti political philosophy at the same time he was teaching how to design and grow food and how those two went together. And I think that no person can pick up now that Bill's gone and carry the carry the, the torch so to speak. I think from a design standpoint, in many ways his heir apparent is Jeff Lawton. I think Bill kind of handed him the torch and I think Jeff's doing a wonderful job with that. But there's so many levels of what Bill was capable of. So much work yet to see. I want to see the work that he's 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 done, the the writings, the drawings. I want to see it all. And I want everybody that cares enough to pick a piece of it up and run with it and carry it. And I think not even the whole thing, but the, a piece of the piece that I want to carry is the concept of self-determination and self-ownership. That is something I've been carrying since I started the show. And Bill gave me a way to explain it on a higher level. And now that he's gone, I see it as my obligation to continue that message. And I know that Bill, whatever way it works in the beyond, is still here with us. And that brings me to the song that I chose for today's show. I thought of this immediately. As soon as I heard Bill had passed on Saturday, immediately thought about this. And I was, uh, I guess it was Sunday, I don't even know now, I'm confused. But as soon as I heard it, I i thought, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do on Tuesday's show. I'm going to talk about Bill and I'm going to play this song. And I know some people are going to go, I don't get it. The song's by Ted Nugent and it's called the Fred Bear song. And I think I've played it once before on the air. It's a pretty intense song. Um, It's been called the Outdoorsman's version of Stairway to Heaven, right? It's like like the rock anthem for the hunter, especially the archery hunter. For those who don't know, Fred Bear was probably the most influential person, uh, other than maybe Howard Hill, on archery in uh, America. Uh, from a hunting standpoint, one of the great pioneers, guy that traveled all over uh the world in fact you'll hear hear Fred's voice here at the end of this song uh talking about if you if the teenage thrill seekers really want to thrill, have them go up into the great north and and tangle with a grizzly and get that feeling that cleanses the soul um, bear archery products i mean just Uh, Amazing company that's, that's, that, and what Fred did was get so many people into the sport, kind of like Bill got so many people into the concept of permaculture, including reluctant, you know, guys like me that said, that's hippie shit. And he went, no, no, look here. Tangle, tangle with this pioneer species instead of the grizzly bear. Look at the thorns versus the claws. This is man's work. But the reason Ted wrote this song is Ted was a good friend of Fred's, Fred was a mentor. Uh, to to Ted and they hunted together and Fred taught him a lot. And, and, and and Nugent is this like so dedicated as an archer. And he, he felt like he was walking in the footsteps of of Fred. And when he heard that, that, uh, Fred had died, he kind of just, and I know this from reading Ted Nugent's book, God guns and God's God guns and rock and roll. Um, He just kind of was in a daze and he did the one thing songwriters do. He sat down and he, he wrote this song. And when he got done with it, he called Fred's widow and he played it for her over the phone. And he says in his book, by the time he was done, he had tears rolling down his face. He couldn't believe that Fred was really gone, but he's not really gone. And it's up to you know him to reconnect. And every time he goes to the woods now, it's like Fred's right there with him. And that's how I feel we should all feel about Bill as we're designing our systems in our lives. Whether they're things that we directly think of permaculture, like planting trees and bushes and shrubs and stuff like that, or whether it's just figuring out how to take care of each other, how to take care of our family – that all of that work that he did was guidance for us. And there's a way you can pay tribute to Bill if you want to. There's a, a thing that he requested, and he said that he would like everybody to plant a tree for him. So what people are doing is when they plant their tree in Bill's memory... They're tagging it with hashtag planet for Bill on Facebook. And there's already hundreds and hundreds of people that have done this. I'm, I'm thinking about where I'm going to put my Bill tree as I'm calling it. I'm, I'm not in a rush for this. I know that Bill's now in a timeless place. Therefore I can take my time to find the fitting tribute. But if you do that, you know, make sure you post it and remember Bill's final words. If you hear that I am dead, Tell them they lie.
0: that feeling coming over me again just like it happened so many times before the spirit of the woods is like an old good friend Makes me feel warm and good inside And I knew his name And it was good to see him again Cause in the wind he's still alive Oh, Fred Bear Walk with me Down the trails again Take me back Back where I Before too long, before too long, it was kind of dark, another misty dusk, and it came from a tangle down below. And I tried to remember everything it taught me so well I had to decide which way to go Was I alone or in a hunter's dream Cause the moment of truth was here and now I felt his touch, I felt his guiding hand Was mine forevermore. Because of red bear, I'll walk down these trails again.
2: to the northwest and the town of the grizzly bear, the polar bear, and the brown bear We get this book that will cleanse the
0: soul.